eternal Father, everlasting King of glory. We hallow your name above every other name. We thank you, Lord, for your mercies and kindness, your favors and graces upon our lives. We appreciate you, Lord, for the grace and the opportunity given to us this day to discover and contemplate this mysterious aspect of our salvation. Father, your word says in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 29, that the secret things belong to God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Since it pleases you, O Lord, to reveal this mystery to us, help us to imbibe and assimilate the lesson for our salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ. My fellow brothers and sisters, and the children of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Word of God says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our salvation is free and awesome. The mystery of our salvation is amazing and gracious. This salvation was accomplished for us only through human cooperation and by the virtue of the incarnation. Thanks to the faith and fiat of the ever-blessed Virgin Mary, who is a daughter of God the Father, mother of God the Son, and the spouse of the Holy Spirit. Dear listener, today I bring you a revelation titled, The Role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Economy of Salvation. The part played by Holy Mary in the eternal plan of human salvation, and why we need to acknowledge her, appreciate her, revere her, venerate her, and honor her. This talk is exegetical and humanistical in nature, so I encourage you to have a copy of the sacred scripture, the Bible, while you listen. Also, you may wish to have a paper and a pen. Furthermore, as you listen, I encourage you sincerely to eschew and discard any sentiment, prejudice, discrimination, or intolerance in order to learn. Just be open-minded, and may the gracious God help you to make up your mind by the grace and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. The Blessed Virgin Mary is honored in the church. She is the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. She is honored by Christians for her singular role in the economy of salvation. Our salvation is incarnational, and since the incarnation is an essential part of this divine economy, the role played by the Blessed Virgin Mary is very essential indispensable and inalienable. The church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. The church rightly honors her with special devotion. From the most ancient times, the Blessed Virgin has been honored with the title of Mother of God, to whose protection the faithful always recourse to in all their dangers and needs. Now, we need to get some certain key terms clear here before we continue. The topic of this revelation is the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the economy of salvation. So, what is economy of salvation? By the economy of salvation, we mean God's eternal plan for the salvation and redemption of mankind. We mean God's resolve to save the human race from the clutches and captivity of the devil after the fall of Adam and Eve, and the plan he had put in place to achieve this. This plan has been in the mind of God since the fall. And Mary, the new Eve, and the mother of Jesus Christ has been part of that eternal plan in the mind of God. Secondly, what is salvation itself? Salvation means to save, to deliver, to rescue. Salvation is the act of saving or remedying someone or some situation from danger, from damage, 
from harm, from destruction, from loss, from failure, or even from death. Salvation can be physical or spiritual. It can be social, economic, or political. Political independence could mean political salvation. Economic independence could mean economic salvation. Anyone who is under any form of physical or spiritual bondage needs physical or spiritual salvation. Salvation is all-encompassing. The Jews understood salvation from social and political points of view. They understood salvation as deliverance, freedom, and victory. When the Jews go to war and return victorious, they say that God has given them salvation. Each time the Lord God delivered them from their oppressors, they praised Him for salvation. And so, God's promise of a Messiah was grossly misunderstood by them. They were expecting a great warrior king like David, who would deliver them from their oppressors. When the Romans occupied their land and they colonialized them, they prayed and they believed God for his salvation someday. But God had a better and eternal plan for them and for us all. When Jesus came and was preaching peace, forgiveness, and eternal life, they were disappointed in him. Even his apostles and disciples misunderstood his mission. And so after his triumphant resurrection, and on that day of his ascension into heaven, they asked him in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, and said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But Jesus didn't answer that question directly. He rather charged them to get ready for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the mission for evangelizing the world. In the Gospels of Mark chapter 10 verses 35 to 37 and Matthew chapter 20 verses 20 to 21, James and John, the sons of Zebedee and their mother, came to Jesus and requested from him, saying, Grant us to sit one at your right and the other at your left hand in your glory, in your kingdom. By this glory and kingdom, they were not necessarily referring to heavenly realities. They simply believed that Jesus would soon take over power and become socially and politically great and relevant. In Christian theology, salvation means the spiritual deliverance of a soul from sin and the eternal death through Jesus Christ. Human salvation refers to the works accomplished by Jesus Christ through his redeeming and atoning death on the cross of Calvary. In this talk, we shall restrict our emphasis to spiritual salvation, which Jesus accomplished for us, and the role played by the Blessed Virgin Mary therein. But why did we need salvation? At the beginning of creation, the entire human race was in Adam. This is known as corporate humanity, or humanity in Adam. Because we existed in Adam and Eve, when they sinned, we share in their sins. The sin of our first parents made us all sinners. The sin is called original sin. Not because we committed them by ourselves, but because we inherited them. It is in our genes. By this sin of our first parents, the human race was sold out to the devil. We were taken captives by the devil. We lost the gift of sanctifying grace, which would help us to become holy. We lost the grace of integrity, which would help us to align our minds with the will of God. We fell out of God's plan. We became sinners frail and mortal, and so we needed deliverance and salvation. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12, the apostle says, Therefore as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And in Psalm chapter 51 verse 5, David acknowledged and said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. But the original sin of Adam and Eve did not destroy the plan of God for the human race. It only thwarted it. 
And so after the fall, God gave his judgment and verdict. In Genesis chapter 3 verses 18 and 19, God called the land because of man. He would now till the soil all the days of his life. The land would now bring forth thorns and thistles for him. In the sweat of his face he shall eat until he returns to the ground, for out of it he was taken. Man is dust, and to dust shall he return. That is the verdict of God for man. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, the Lord God cursed the woman. She would experience multiplied pains during childbirth, but would still desire her husband and be subject to him. And in Genesis chapter 3 verse 14, God caused the serpent above all cattle and above all wild animals. The serpent would now move upon its belly and shall eat dust all the days of its life. But God didn't only declare causes. He also announced good news. He declared his plan for the salvation of man and the restoration of all things which we lost through Adam's disobedience. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God announced to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your feet, and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first announcement of the good news of salvation. By the woman, God was not referring to the disobedient Eve, but to another woman, a second Eve, a new Eve, who would restore all that was lost through the first Eve. Mary is the woman. Mary is that new Eve who gave us this seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman who crushed and bruised the head of the seed of the serpent. This was accomplished at the cross of Calvary when Jesus died. Therefore conquering death, the devil, sin and hell, and won eternal salvation and redemption for the entire human race. And in Colossians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 the scripture tells us that by that death, Jesus cancelled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands, that he set it aside, kneeling it to the cross. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. At the foot of the tree in the garden of Eden stood Eve, through whose disobedience sins entered the world. But at the foot of the tree of the cross of Calvary stood Mary, the new Eve, through whose obedience life was restored to mankind. Hence, St. Bruno said, and I quote, Eve was the cause of death by allowing herself to be overcome by the serpent, but Mary, by conquering the devil, restored life to us. End of quote. And the St. Irenaeus also said, and I quote, The knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience, and by her obedience, Mary became the cause of salvation for herself and for the entire human race. Also, St. Anselm says, All the good created for man were lost in Adam. All this and much more were regained for us by Mary. He also added that God is the father of the created world, but Mary is the mother of the recreated world. Mary is that woman in the mind of God, the woman designed to undo the evil done by Eve. The woman whose obedience would repair Eve's disobedience. The second Eve who together with the second Adam, Jesus, would reconcile mankind to God. Speaking on this in Romans chapter 5 verses 18 and 19, Apostle Paul said, Then, as one man's trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous.
Here we see the essential and indispensable role of the Blessed Virgin Mary, whose consent and obedience preceded and facilitated that of our Son, Jesus Christ. It was actually Eve, not Adam, who sinned. Apostle Paul reiterated this in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14, and he said, and I quote, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. End of quote. Now I want to look at Mary's faith and fiat, her faith and her cooperation, her consent. Indeed, it was not Adam that was deceived, it was Eve. The devil deceived Eve by luring and enticing her, and Eve willingly gave her consent. On the other hand, Mary, the new Eve, needed to give her consent. God sought Mary's consent and permission to realize human salvation. It is the will of God that Mary's consent should precede the Incarnation. It was also his divine will and plan that Mary's consent should counter, nullify and destroy the covenant which Eve entered into with the devil. At the Annunciation, the Blessed Virgin Mary expressed great faith in God by submitting to the divine will. She graciously submitted and consented to the divine will when she replied to the archangel Gabriel in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 38 and said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Though without her knowledge, the Holy Mary had been prepared to be the mother of the Redeemer. God prepared her through the privilege of the Immaculate Conception by giving her prevenient grace, a prior preparation of heart. At the Annunciation, she knew the consequences of getting pregnant without marriage, but volunteered to do this if it be the will and plan of God. Hence her fiat, that is her consent, became the foundation on which the human salvation was built. This fiat is a glimpse of the depth of her faith. She believed without proof. What a great faith. Today we call Abraham our father in faith because he believed even when it was difficult. But we must accept Mary as our mother in faith because she believed even when it was impossible. By pronouncing her fiat at the Annunciation and giving her consent to the Incarnation, Mary was already collaborating with the whole work her son was to accomplish. She is a mother wherever Jesus Christ is the Savior and the head of the mystical body. See Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 973. Hence we call her auxiliary or co-redemptrix. Now let us look at Old Testament prophecies concerning the Blessed Virgin Mary. The salvation of the human race didn't just happen. It has been part of eternal plan in the mind of God from the very beginning of time and a virgin was chosen as a special instrument to accomplish this plan. This virgin woman would give her savior and redeemer the mystical and physical body with which to accomplish our salvation. It was through this woman that God became Emmanuel and lives among us as recorded in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 and according to John chapter 1 verse 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In her the eternal father has prepared for his son a body for the pure and the unblemished sacrifice that would be acceptable to him for the redemption of the world. The writer to the Hebrews cited Psalm 40 verses 6 and 8 where he wrote in Hebrews 10 47 and said, For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In bond offerings and in sin offering thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I have come to do thy will. 
O God, as it is written for me in the roll of the scroll. The prophets spoke of the woman without knowing who she was going to be and the role she was going to play in the economy of human salvation. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2 to 5, Bible says, So the Lord will abandon his people to their enemies, that is Satan and his agents, until the woman who is pregnant has a son. Then his fellow countrymen who are in exile will be reunited with their own people. The Jews understood this prophecy as foretelling a political salvation, but it simply referred to the spiritual salvation which was to be accomplished in Christ, and the woman, a certain virgin, will be instrumental to it. Again, in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, Bible says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a woman, indeed a virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. This prophecy of a virgin conceiving and giving birth to the Emmanuel is one of the greatest evidences that the role of a virgin is not just passive, but indispensable to the work of human salvation. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 21 and 22, Bible says, and I quote, Set up waymarks for yourselves. Make yourselves guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman protects a man. Who is this woman that will compass, encompass, and protect a man? Considering that the Jews didn't count women as anything, Prophet Jeremiah saw it as something new and strange on earth for a woman to rise above a man. In Song of Songs, chapter 6, verses 8 to 10, I quote, Who is she that cometh forth as a morning rising, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army set in battle array? Both David and Solomon are considered as prophets. See Acts of Apostles, chapter 2, 2 to 30. In this vision, the wisest man saw an extraordinary woman. This woman is comparable to the woman of Revelation chapter 12, that great potent which appeared in heaven, that woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Some theologians even insinuated that Solomon was searching for this woman, and so married 700 wives, and had 300 concubines, all in search of this extraordinary woman. In Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, Bible says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This child born to us, this son given to us, this wonderful Counselor, this Mighty God, this Everlasting Father, and this Prince of Peace was to be given to us through the cooperation and the instrumentality of a woman, a maiden, and a virgin. All these are enough proofs that the salvation of human race was in the mind of God from the beginning of time, and that from that time immemorial, God had chosen a woman to be the ark of the new covenant. But who is this woman? The Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 28 tells us that virgin's name is Mary. But you must have observed that Old Testament prophecies have deliberately carefully and specifically use the term woman most often. So, who is this woman? In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, Jesus finally shows us who she is. Just listen attentively as we do a little exegesis on John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. At the wedding at Canaan in Galilee, Jesus referred to his mother as a woman. When his mother informed him of the shortage of wine at the wedding, he said to her, Woman, what do you want from me? 
Don't you know that my hour has not yet come? This was not a sign of disrespect or disregard, as some mischievous Christians have insinuated. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world, could not be arrogant, insolent, or mischievous to disregard his mother. There are important lessons that the scripture needs us to learn here. Firstly, by maintaining and saying the same word, woman, instead of mother, Jesus deliberately wanted everyone to now realize and recognize and embrace the woman so far promised and prophesied and now revealed. Secondly, he did not dishonor her by calling her woman, but to favor her humility. Thirdly, he confirms her power and wisdom to intercede for mankind as well as proves her as the only one who can worthily make him do something, even when it was not yet time. For having said that his hour had not yet come, Jesus still obeyed her by turning water into wine. This is Jesus' first miracle of nature, and it is with a particular joy that he performs it. He performed this miracle to confirm that the woman is truly the miracle of the miracles of nature. In verse 4 of that John chapter 2, Jesus asks his mother a question. Don't you know that my hour has not yet come? This shows that the woman really knew it was not yet time for Christ to grant such a favor. Yet, she went ahead and made the request, and Jesus granted it, expecting that all would henceforth acknowledge his mother's goodness and the generosity. The lesson is that even when it is not yet time for God to grant our request, he can grant such at the mediation and the intercession of this humble woman as our intercessor. The most important thing is to first of all invite the woman into our lives so that we would be able to invite and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Redeemer. John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 show that the couple invited the woman first, then Jesus and his disciples, and they were saved from shame and embarrassment. Again, in the same way as she saved the bride and groom from shame and disgrace, which could have befallen them out of shortage of wine, she will save all persons who recourse to her from being damned eternally due to shortage of grace of God. Jesus Christ was not ignorant of the couple's need, but he wanted his mother to exercise her maternal power over him so that he and all of us would all acknowledge, appreciate, and follow suit by taking her as our mother. For inasmuch as Jesus is all-powerful by nature, Mary is all-powerful by grace. All these confirm her as the intercessor and advocate for all God's children. In verse 5 of this John chapter 2, Mary said to the stewards, Whatever he tells you, do it. This shows that Mary does not seek her will or glory, but the will of God. It also proves that God will grant our request through this woman of promise. Hence, we should recourse to her in obedience and reverence. Just as she counseled the stewards at the wedding feast to do whatever Jesus told them to do, and they obeyed her, and we are blessed with the best wine. So she counsels us today, telling us to do whatever Jesus and the church tells us to do, so that we too may be blessed with the best wine, the wine of God's grace, which helps us to attain eternal life with God. In verse 10, the steward of the occasion said to the groom, but you have kept the best wine until now. This is evident that prayers and requests made by this woman are very efficacious and more perfectly acceptable to God than those made by any other person. So we need to constantly seek her intercession. In verse 11, we are told that this was the first of his signs which Jesus did at the Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And this was done at the instance of this woman, the woman of promise. This proves that Jesus gives more glory to the Father in heaven by submitting to the woman that he will do 
by other means. This testifies also that the woman is a miracle of the miracles of glory. Oh, how perfectly we glorify God when, to please him, we submit ourselves to the woman after the example of Jesus Christ, our sole exemplar. This is because she is the quintessence of God's goodness and the excellence masterpiece of the Most High, the knowledge of which he has reserved for himself. In John's Gospel chapter 19 verses 26 to 27, while still hanging on the cross, Jesus gave this woman to us as mother. He still called her woman when she said to the mother, Woman, behold your son. And to you and I, he said, Son, behold your mother. In the book of Revelation chapter 12 verses 17, the word of God refers to all people who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus Christ as the children of this woman. Indeed, all who refuse to be identified as the children of Mary are making a deadly mistake. At the fullness of time. In the book of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, Apostle Paul wrote, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. According to St. Pope John Paul II in his encyclical, Redemptorist Matter No. 1, these words of St. Paul celebrate together the love of the Father, the mission of the Son, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the role of the woman from whom the Redeemer was born, and our own divine filiation in the mystery of the fullness of time. The Blessed Virgin Mary is honored as the mother of God, Theotokos. She is honored as the mother of the Redeemer, Mata Redemptoris. And she is also honored as the mother of the Church, Mother Ecclesia. And by these privileges, she surpasses all creatures and deserves a special honor and reverence in the Church of Christ by all Christians. For as she herself prophesied in Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 48, For behold from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. Mary is the mother of God, because Jesus who is born of her is God and didn't cease to be God at the time of the Incarnation. Instead, by virtue of the union of essences, he remained both God and man in one. This is called the hypostatic union. Those who deny that Mary is the mother of God are denying that God the Son came in the flesh. And in 1 John chapter 4 verse 3, the scripture says that every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now already is in the world. Mary is the mother of the Redeemer, because her son Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of mankind, by virtue of his sacrificial death on the cross. She is the mother of the church, because the church is the body of Christ, and Christ himself entrusted the church to her through beloved Apostle John. Where he said in the Gospel of John 19, verses 26 and 27, Woman, behold your son, and her to the church, when he said, Son, behold your mother. Mary is the mother of the members of Christ, having cooperated by charity, that the faithful might be born in the church, who are members of that head. Wherefore she is hailed as a preeminent and singular member of the church, and as its type and excellent exemplar in faith and charity. 
The Catholic Church, taught by the Holy Spirit, honors her with filial affection and piety as a most beloved mother. See Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, number 53. Now, on our devotion to the Most Blessed Virgin Mary. Our devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary is to appreciate the graces of God upon her life and to appreciate her role in the economy of salvation. Our belief is that since it pleased God to give salvation to the world through her, it would also please Him to receive us and our prayers through her. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 971, clarifies that our honor to Mary is a special devotion which differs essentially from the adoration which is given to the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, and equally to the Father and the Holy Spirit, and greatly fosters this devotion. Catholics do not worship or adore Mary. We only revere and venerate her as she truly deserves and as Christ commanded us. And there is no amount of honor or reverence that is too much for her. If mere human beings go with the titles of reverend, venerable, honorable, the Blessed Virgin Mary deserves so much more. But we must know that there are three types of worship. The first one is called Latria, which means supreme worship. This is the worship given to God alone. The next one, the second one is Hyperdulia, which means superior honor. This is the honor which is given to the Blessed Virgin Mary as the mother of God made man. And the third and the last is called Dulia, which means honor. This is the honor which is given to all other saints and angels. You can as well add your own classification of honor and worship. We all revere, we venerate, we honor people, we respect them. Those people we consider as deserving them. They may be our parents, teachers, pastors, mentors, or those who have impacted our lives in one way or the other. Similarly, our African value and culture requires us to show various kinds of obeisance and courtesy to deserving persons, elders, and leaders. And when we do that, we don't see it as worship. Rather, we see it as giving honor to whom honor is due. Permit me to say without mincing words, without any fear of favor, without bothering whose ox is God, that there is nobody who deserves honor and reverence more than Mary, who gave birth to our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. According to St. Irenaeus, as Eve by her disobedience caused her own death and that of the whole human race, so did the Virgin Mary by her obedience become the cause of her own salvation and that of all mankind. And the Saint Anselm said, and I quote, Although God could create the world out of nothing, yet when it was lost by sin, he did not repair the evil without the cooperation of Mary. End of quote. Mary is the bridge between the Old and New Testament, and we are led to address her, and rightly too, as the Ark of the New Covenant. Mary is the masterpiece of God, the perfect image of his beauty and glory. In the book of Exodus chapter 25, 10-25, the glorious Ark of the Covenant was built according to God's own specifications, and the two images of cherubs were molded on it. The people literally worship the Ark as it represents the presence of God. But firstly, let us examine the content of the celebrated Ark of the Covenant. According to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 4, the ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had booted, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Firstly, the manna. On their way to the promised land, God rained food from heaven for the Israelites in the desert. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 25 to 59, Jesus affirmed that he is the real food from heaven. 
full of everlasting life. This Jesus, Mary carried in her virginal womb. Secondly, the staff of Moses. The staff of Moses was the sacramental that wrought so much wonders among the Egyptians and the Israelites in the Old Testament. The staff was a miracle worker, but Jesus Christ is a miracle worker per excellence. This Jesus, Mary carried in her virginal womb. Thirdly, the stone tablets. The law was given to Moses in two stone tablets. These tablets were reposed in the ark. Jesus is not just the real lawgiver, but the perfection of the Lord of God. Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This Jesus, Mary carried in her virginal womb. The manna, the staff of Moses, the stone tablets, all signified and typified Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of mankind, and Mary carried him in her virginal womb. With these sacred items in the ark, it was held sacred and venerated by the people of God because they saw the ark of the covenant as tangible sign of God's presence in their midst. Look, the evangelist understood and appreciated how Mary fulfilled and fitted into the title of the ark of the new covenant. He drew Old Testament texts that any Jewish reader would understand and identify with the ark. Let us have some exegesis here. Firstly, let us study the similitude and similarity between Exodus chapter 40, 34 and 35 and Luke chapter 1 and 35. Exodus chapter 40 verse 34 says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Luke chapter 1 verse 35 reads, The power of the Most High will cover you with its shadow, and so the child will be holy and will be called the Son of God. Secondly, note that in the Old Testament, the cloud always signifies the presence of Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, the Word of God says that, By the day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. With its shadow, the cloud covered the Ark of the Covenant, while the glory of God, that is God himself, hid it from within. In her turn, Mary is going to be the object of this double manifestation, a presence from above that signifies transcendence and the presence of the Lord from within. Thirdly, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6, the scene of the visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary was prefigured. Here there is a story told in reference to the account of the transportation and the transfer of the Ark of the Covenant, which is very similar and is drawn up in close parallelism with episode of the visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The events, the atmosphere, the terms used to describe them correspond very closely. Let us listen to this. We are analyzing 2 Samuel chapter 6 and Gospel of Luke chapter 1. In 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 2, David and his men hurried out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of the Covenant. In Luke chapter 1 verse 39, at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. Secondly, in 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 5, David and the whole people of Israel were celebrating before the Ark of the Covenant. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 41 to 43, Elizabeth's cry of greeting and the exhortation of John the Baptist at the presence of Mary. Thirdly, in 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 9, David said, However can the ark of the covenant come to me? 
and in Luke chapter 1 verse 43, Elizabeth said, But how can I be so favored that the mother of the Lord should come to me? Additionally, in 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 11, the ark of the Yahweh remained for three months in the house of Obededon. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 56, Mary remained in the house of Elizabeth for three months. Let us note the following parallels between the visitation and the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Abinadab to that of Obededom and to Jerusalem. 1. The two journeys that took place in Judah. 2. There were shouts of jubilation, that of the people and that of the Elizabeth in the New Testament. 3. David and the John the Baptist exalted for joy. 4. The presence of the Ark and that of Mary were blessings to the house and to the people. And the five, the ark and Mary remained in the house for three months. These scriptural passages are not mere coincidences. In fact, in the marvelously artful account of the visitation, the image of the ark of the covenant is walked into the person of Mary. And here and there, in the typological approach, it is possible to see that the Lord whose mother she is, is no other than the same Lord who resided in the ark. Finally, let us consider this. The theme is taken up in the final time at the end of the infancy gospel. As Jesus enters the temple, Simeon greets him as the glory of Israel. Confer Luke chapter 2 verses 32. This is a divine title. The glory of Yahweh that had deserted the temple once it was bereft of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember Ichabod in 1 Samuel chapter 4 verse 19 to 21. This same God re-enters the temple as Mary comes there carrying Jesus. Thus it is that Simeon can now die happily. He now can see that since he has seen the glory of the Lord, the time has been fulfilled. Here, Mary, eschatological daughter of Zion and the Ark of the New Covenant, accomplishes her mission in a way in bringing to the temple the one whose place it properly is. This is what Jesus himself will affirm in the very last episode of the infancy gospel, that of his being found in the temple, when he said in Luke chapter 2 verse 49, I must be in my father's house. In Luke chapter 1 verse 35, Apostle Luke asserts that this creative life-giving power of the Most High will overshadow Mary. Luke's choice of the word overshadow is of great importance here. Several recent writers, both Catholics, Lutheran, Anglican, have stressed the significance of this verb in this context. They see in it an indication that the divine presence descended on Mary as it has one descended on the Ark of the Covenant. At the very end of the book of Exodus, in chapter 40, verse 34 to 35, it is written that the cloud enveloped the tent of witness, and the tent was filled with the glory of the Lord. And Moses could not enter the tent of witness because the cloud was overshadowing it, and the tent had been filled with the glory of the Lord. In the great Old Testament, words meaning to overshadow are comparatively rare. They are nearly always found in passages which speak of the presence of God. For example, in Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2 to 6, the prophet promises that on the day of Yahweh, the divine presence will once again overshadow the purified daughter of Zion with its glory. When St. Luke wrote the word overshadow, he knew it would provoke the mind of any Jewish reader. No Jew reading the words that the power of the Most High will overshadow thee could fail to think of the divine presence or the Shekinah glory. The meaning of Luke chapter 1 verse 35 therefore is that the creative power of God's Holy Spirit was going to descend upon Mary as the glory of the Lord had once descended upon the tent of witness and filled it with the divine presence. 
Mary is the ark of the new covenant. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 19 through chapter 12, verse 1, Bible says, and I quote, Then the sanctuary of God in heaven was thrown open, and the ark of his covenant was seen standing inside his sanctuary. And there were flashes of lightning, loud rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a terrific hailstorm. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. End of quote. It is very clear that the woman spoken about here is the same woman prophesied in the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis chapter 3. She is still the same woman mentioned in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 35. She is the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the Blessed Virgin Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. Beloved listener, our God is omnipotent, he can do all things. He is omnipresent, he is everywhere. He is omniscient, he knows all things. He is all-sufficient, he is complete in himself and lacks nothing. Whatever he does is perfect and no one can advise him or question his will or authority. The role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the history of salvation, the place of Mary in the church, of her son, and the honor given to her by some Christians are sources of concern to other Christians who are not comfortable with it. But who would curse whom God has blessed? Who would fight whom God has favored? Who would attack whom God has protected? Nobody. Mary was firstly honored by God. Why not imitate God by honoring her also? God is happy with the most blessed Virgin Mary, her daughter. How can you be unhappy with her? To honor Mary is to fulfill biblical prophecy. Come on, let us honor her. As a Christian, Mary is your mother, whether you realize it or not, whether you understand it or not, whether you believe it or not. Remember that the one you call Lord and God, Master and Savior, calls her mother. May the Holy Spirit of God enlighten your understanding and give you the conviction to do the will of God in this aspect. And may the great mother of God, Mary Most Holy, continue to intercede for you until she sees you admitted into the kingdom of our dear son, where she is your queen forever and ever. Amen. I leave you with God's choicest blessings. Oh God, we thank you for choosing the blessed Virgin Mary and preparing her for the task of human salvation. By this special privilege, you made her daughter of God the Father, mother of God the Son, and spouse of the Holy Spirit. You kept her sinless and made her docile to the inspirations of the Holy Spirit. Grant, we pray, Lord, that having known and understood this mystery, we would love and honor her for the role she played in the economy of our salvation. Forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being patient. Remember, blessed. I am his master servant, Jeremiah Onkobi, a lay Catholic preacher and teacher, a trained and commissioned evangelizer and a counselor. You can contact me on 080-6945-3866. You can follow Crusader Jerry on Instagram or like my Facebook pages, his master servant ministries or the Crusader. Visit my website to read my articles or download talks at hismasterservantministries.com.ng Thank you and remember
eternal Father, everlasting King of glory. We hallow your name above every other name. We thank you, Lord, for your mercies and kindness, your favors and graces upon our lives. We appreciate you, Lord, for the grace and the opportunity given to us this day to discover and contemplate this mysterious aspect of our salvation. Father, your word says in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 29, that the secret things belong to God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Since it pleases you, O Lord, to reveal this mystery to us, help us to imbibe and assimilate the lesson for our salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ. My fellow brothers and sisters, and the children of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Word of God says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our salvation is free and awesome. The mystery of our salvation is amazing and gracious. This salvation was accomplished for us only through human cooperation and by the virtue of the Incarnation. Thanks to the faith and fiat of the ever-blessed Virgin Mary, who is a daughter of God the Father, mother of God the Son, and the spouse of the Holy Spirit. Dear listener, today I bring you a revelation titled, The Role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Economy of Salvation. The part played by Holy Mary in the eternal plan of human salvation, and why we need to acknowledge her, appreciate her, revere her, venerate her, and honor her. This talk is exegetical and humanistical in nature, so I encourage you to have a copy of the sacred scripture of the Bible while you listen. Also, you may wish to have a paper and a pen. Furthermore, as you listen, I encourage you sincerely to eschew and discard any sentiment, prejudice, discrimination, or intolerance in order to learn. Just be open-minded, and may the gracious God help you to make up your mind by the grace and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Blessed Virgin Mary is honored in the church. She is the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. She is honored by Christians for her singular role in the economy of salvation. Our salvation is incarnational, and since the incarnation is an essential part of this divine economy, the role played by the Blessed Virgin Mary is very essential, indispensable, and inalienable. The Church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. The Church rightly honors her with special devotion. From the most ancient times, the Blessed Virgin has been honored with the title of Mother of God, to whose protection the faithful always recourse to in all their dangers and needs. Now, we need to get some certain key terms clear here before we continue. The topic of this revelation is the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the economy of salvation. So, what is economy of salvation? By the economy of salvation, we mean God's eternal plan for the salvation and redemption of mankind. We mean God's resolve to save the human race from the clutches and captivity of the devil after the fall of Adam and Eve, and the plan he had put in place to achieve this. This plan has been in the mind of God since the fall, and Mary, the new Eve, and the mother of Jesus Christ has been part of that eternal plan in the mind of God. Secondly, what is salvation itself? Salvation means to save, to deliver, to rescue. 
Salvation is the act of saving or remedying someone or some situation from danger, from damage, from harm, from destruction, from loss, from failure, or even from death. Salvation can be physical or spiritual. It can be social, economic, or political. Political independence could mean political salvation. Economic independence could mean economic salvation. Anyone who is under any form of physical or spiritual bondage needs physical or spiritual salvation. Salvation is all-encompassing. The Jews understood salvation from social and political points of view. They understood salvation as deliverance, freedom, and victory. When the Jews go to war and return victorious, they say that God has given them salvation. Each time the Lord God delivered them from their oppressors, they praised Him for salvation. And so, God's promise of a Messiah was grossly misunderstood by them. They were expecting a great warrior king like David, who would deliver them from their oppressors. When the Romans occupied their land and they colonialized them, they prayed and they believed God for his salvation someday. But God had a better and eternal plan for them and for us all. When Jesus came and was preaching peace, forgiveness, and eternal life, they were disappointed in him. Even his apostles and disciples misunderstood his mission. And so after his triumphant resurrection, and on that day of his ascension into heaven, they asked him in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, and said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But Jesus didn't answer that question directly. He rather charged them to get ready for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the mission for evangelizing the world. In the Gospels of Mark chapter 10 verses 35 to 37, and Matthew chapter 20 verses 20 to 21, James and John, the sons of Zebedee and their mother, came to Jesus and requested from him, saying, Grant us to sit, one at your right, and the other at your left hand in your glory, in your kingdom. By this glory and kingdom, they were not necessarily referring to heavenly realities. They simply believed that Jesus would soon take over power and become socially and politically great and relevant. In Christian theology, salvation means the spiritual deliverance of a soul from sin and eternal death through Jesus Christ. Human salvation refers to the works accomplished by Jesus Christ through his redeeming and atoning death on the cross of Calvary. In this talk, we shall restrict our emphasis to spiritual salvation, which Jesus accomplished for us, and the role played by the Blessed Virgin Mary therein. But why did we need salvation? At the beginning of creation, the entire human race was in Adam. This is known as corporate humanity, or humanity in Adam. Because we existed in Adam and Eve, when they sinned, we share in their sins. The sin of our first parents made us all sinners. The sin is called original sin. Not because we committed them by ourselves, but because we inherited them. It is in our genes. By this sin of our first parents, the human race was sold out to the devil. We were taken captives by the devil. We lost the gift of sanctifying grace, which would help us to become holy. We lost the grace of integrity, which would help us to align our minds with the will of God. We fell out of God's plan. We became sinners frail and mortal, and so we needed deliverance and salvation. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12, the apostle says, Therefore as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And in Psalm chapter 51 verse 5, David acknowledged and said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
But the original sin of Adam and Eve did not destroy the plan of God for the human race. It only thwarted it. And so after the fall, God gave his judgment and verdict. In Genesis chapter 3 verses 18 and 19, God called the land because of man. He would now till the soil all the days of his life. The land would now bring forth thorns and thistles for him. In the sweat of his face he shall eat until he returns to the ground, for out of it he was taken. Man is dust, and to dust shall he return. That is the verdict of God for man. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, the Lord God cursed the woman. She would experience multiplied pains during childbirth, but would still desire her husband and be subject to him. And in Genesis chapter 3 verse 14, God caused a serpent above all cattle and above all wild animals. The serpent would now move upon its belly and shall eat dust all the days of its life. But God didn't only declare causes. He also announced good news. He declared his plan for the salvation of man and the restoration of all things which we lost through Adam's disobedience. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God announced to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your feet, and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first announcement of the good news of salvation. By the woman, God was not referring to the disobedient Eve, but to another woman, a second Eve, a new Eve, who would restore all that was lost through the first Eve. Mary is the woman. Mary is that new Eve who gave us this seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman who crushed and bruised the head of the seed of the serpent. This was accomplished at the cross of Calvary when Jesus died. Therefore conquering death, the devil, sin and hell, and won eternal salvation and redemption for the entire human race. And in Colossians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 the scripture tells us that by that death, Jesus cancelled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands, that he set it aside, kneeling it to the cross. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. At the foot of the tree in the garden of Eden stood Eve, through whose disobedience sins entered the world. But at the foot of the tree of the cross of Calvary stood Mary, the new Eve, through whose obedience life was restored to mankind. Hence, St. Bruno said, and I quote, Eve was the cause of death by allowing herself to be overcome by the serpent, but Mary, by conquering the devil, restored life to us. End of quote. And St. Irenaeus also said, and I quote, The knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience, and by her obedience, Mary became the cause of salvation for herself and for the entire human race. Also, St. Anselm says, All the good created for man was lost in Adam. All this and much more were regained for us by Mary. He also added that God is the father of the created world, but Mary is the mother of the recreated world. Mary is that woman in the mind of God, the woman designed to undo the evil done by Eve. The woman whose obedience would repair Eve's disobedience. The second Eve who together with the second Adam, Jesus, would reconcile mankind to God. Speaking on this in Romans chapter 5 verses 18 and 19, Apostle Paul said, Then, as one man's trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so 
By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Here we see the essential and indispensable role of the Blessed Virgin Mary, whose consent and obedience preceded and facilitated that of our Son, Jesus Christ. It was actually Eve, not Adam, who sinned. Apostle Paul reiterated this in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14, and he said, and I quote, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. End of quote. Now I want to look at Mary's faith and fiat, her faith and her cooperation, her consent. Indeed, it was not Adam that was deceived, it was Eve. The devil deceived Eve by luring and enticing her, and Eve willingly gave her consent. On the other hand, Mary, the new Eve, needed to give her consent. God sought Mary's consent and permission to realize human salvation. It is the will of God that Mary's consent should precede the Incarnation. It was also his divine will and plan that Mary's consent should counter, nullify and destroy the covenant which Eve entered into with the devil. At the Annunciation, the Blessed Virgin Mary expressed great faith in God by submitting to the divine will. She graciously submitted and consented to the divine will when she replied to the archangel Gabriel in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 38 and said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Though without her knowledge, the Holy Mary had been prepared to be the mother of the Redeemer. God prepared her through the privilege of the Immaculate Conception by giving her prevenient grace, a prior preparation of heart. At the Annunciation, she knew the consequences of getting pregnant without marriage, but volunteered to do this if it be the will and plan of God. Hence her fiat, that is her consent, became the foundation on which the human salvation was built. This fiat is a glimpse of the depth of her faith. She believed without proof. What a great faith. Today we call Abraham our father in faith because he believed even when it was difficult. But we must accept Mary as our mother in faith because she believed even when it was impossible. By pronouncing her fiat at the Annunciation and giving her consent to the Incarnation, Mary was already collaborating with the whole work her son was to accomplish. She is a mother wherever Jesus Christ is the Savior and the head of the mystical body. See Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 973. Hence we call her Auxiliary or Co-Redemptrix. Now let us look at Old Testament prophecies concerning the Blessed Virgin Mary. The salvation of the human race didn't just happen. It has been part of eternal plan in the mind of God from the very beginning of time. And a virgin was chosen as a special instrument to accomplish this plan. This virgin woman would give a savior and redeemer the mystical and physical body with which to accomplish our salvation. It was through this woman that God became Emmanuel and lives among us, as recorded in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. And according to John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In her, the eternal father has prepared for his son a body for the pure and the unblemished sacrifice that would be acceptable to him for the redemption of the world. The writer to the Hebrews cited Psalm 40 verses 6 and 8 where he wrote in Hebrews 10 47 and said, for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. 
in burnt offerings and in sin offering that has taken no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God, as it is written for me in the roll of the scroll. The prophets spoke of the woman without knowing who she was going to be and the role she was going to play in the economy of human salvation. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2 to 5, Bible says, So the Lord will abandon his people to their enemies, that is Satan and his agents, until the woman who is pregnant has a son. Then his fellow countrymen who are in exile will be reunited with their own people. The Jews understood this prophecy as foretelling a political salvation. But it simply referred to the spiritual salvation which was to be accomplished in Christ, and a woman, a certain virgin, will be instrumental to it. Again, in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, Bible says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a woman, indeed a virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. This prophecy of a virgin conceiving and giving birth to the Emmanuel is one of the greatest evidences that the role of a virgin is not just passive but indispensable to the work of human salvation. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 21 and 22, Bible says and I quote, Set up waymarks for yourselves, make yourselves guideposts, consider well the highway, the road by which you went, return, O virgin Israel. Return to these cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman protects a man. Who is this woman that will compass, encompass, and protect a man? Considering that the Jews didn't count women as anything, Prophet Jeremiah saw it as something new and strange on earth for a woman to rise above a man. In Song of Songs, chapter 6, verses 8 to 10, I quote, who is she that cometh forth as a morning rising, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army set in battle array? Both David and Solomon are considered as prophets. See Acts of Apostles chapter 2, 2 to 30. In this vision, the wisest man saw an extraordinary woman. This woman is comparable to the woman of Revelation chapter 12, that great potent which appeared in heaven, that woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Some theologians even insinuated that Solomon was searching for this woman, and so married 700 wives, and had 300 concubines, all in search of this extraordinary woman. In Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, Bible says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This child born to us, this son given to us, this Wonderful Counselor, this Mighty God, this Everlasting Father, and this Prince of Peace was to be given to us through the cooperation and the instrumentality of a woman, a maiden, and a virgin. All these are enough proofs that the salvation of human race was in the mind of God from the beginning of time, and that from that time immemorial, God had chosen a woman to be the ark of the new covenant. But who is this woman? The Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 28 tells us that virgin's name is Mary. But you must have observed that Old Testament prophecies have deliberately carefully and specifically use the term woman most often. So, who is this woman? In the Gospel of John chapter 2, Jesus finally shows us who she is. Just listen attentively as we do a little exegesis on John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. At the wedding at Canaan in Galilee, Jesus referred to his mother as a woman 
when his mother informed him of the shortage of wine at the wedding, he said to her, Woman, what do you want from me? Don't you know that my hour has not yet come? This was not a sign of disrespect or disregard, as some mischievous Christians have insinuated. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world, could not be arrogant, insolent, or mischievous to disregard his mother. There are important lessons that the scripture needs us to learn here. Firstly, by maintaining and saying the same word, woman, instead of mother, Jesus deliberately wanted everyone to now realize and recognize and embrace the woman so far promised and prophesied and now revealed. Secondly, he did not dishonor her by calling her woman, but to favor her humility. Thirdly, he confirms her power and wisdom to intercede for mankind as well as proves her as the only one who can worthily make him do something, even when it was not yet time. For having said that his hour had not yet come, Jesus still obeyed her by turning water into wine. This is Jesus' first miracle of nature, and it is with a particular joy that he performs it. He performed this miracle to confirm that the woman is truly the miracle of the miracles of nature. In verse 4 of that John chapter 2, Jesus asks his mother a question. Don't you know that my hour has not yet come? This shows that the woman really knew it was not yet time for Christ to grant such a favor. Yet, she went ahead and made the request, and Jesus granted it, expecting that all would henceforth acknowledge his mother's goodness and the generosity. The lesson is that even when it is not yet time for God to grant our request, he can grant such at the mediation and the intercession of this humble woman as our intercessor. The most important thing is to first of all invite the woman into our lives so that we would be able to invite and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Redeemer. John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 shows that the couple invited the woman first, then Jesus and his disciples, and they were saved from shame and embarrassment. Again, in the same way as she saved the bride and groom from shame and disgrace, which could have befallen them out of shortage of wine, she will save all persons who recourse to her from being damned eternally due to shortage of grace of God. Jesus Christ was not ignorant of the couple's need, but he wanted his mother to exercise her maternal power over him so that he and all of us would all acknowledge, appreciate, and follow suit by taking her as our mother. For inasmuch as Jesus is all-powerful by nature, Mary is all-powerful by grace. All this confirm her as the intercessor and advocate for all God's children. In verse 5 of this John chapter 2, Mary said to the stewards, Whatever he tells you, do it. This shows that Mary does not seek her will or glory, but the will of God. It also proves that God will grant our request through this woman of promise. Hence, we should recourse to her in obedience and reverence. Just as she counseled the stewards at the wedding feast to do whatever Jesus told them to do, and they obeyed her, and we are blessed with the best wine. So she counsels us today, telling us to do whatever Jesus and the church tells us to do, so that we too may be blessed with the best wine, the wine of God's grace, which helps us to attain eternal life with God. In verse 10, the steward of the occasion said to the groom, but you have kept the best wine until now. This is evident that prayers and requests made by this woman are very efficacious and more perfectly acceptable to God than those made by any other person. So we need to constantly seek her intercession. In verse 11, we are told that this was the first of his signs which Jesus did at the Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
And this was done at the instance of this woman, the woman of promise. This proves that Jesus gives more glory to the Father in heaven by submitting to the woman that he will do by other means. This testifies also that the woman is a miracle of the miracles of glory. Oh, how perfectly we glorify God when, to please him, we submit ourselves to the woman after the example of Jesus Christ, our sole exemplar. This is because she is the quintessence of God's goodness and the excellence masterpiece of the Most High, the knowledge of which he has reserved for himself. In John's Gospel chapter 19 verses 26 to 27, while still hanging on the cross, Jesus gave this woman to us as mother. He still called her woman when she said to the mother, Woman, behold your son. And to you and I, he said, Son, behold your mother. In the book of Revelation chapter 12 verses 17, the word of God refers to all people who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus Christ as the children of this woman. Indeed, all who refuse to be identified as the children of Mary are making a deadly mistake. At the fullness of time. In the book of Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 to 6, Apostle Paul wrote, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. According to St. Pope John Paul II in his encyclical, Redemptorist Matter No. 1, these words of St. Paul celebrate together the love of the Father, the mission of the Son, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the role of the woman from whom the Redeemer was born, and our own divine filiation in the mystery of the fullness of time. The Blessed Virgin Mary is honored as the Mother of God, Theotokos. She is honored as the mother of the Redeemer, Mata Redemptoris, and she is also honored as the mother of the church, Mother Ecclesia. And by these privileges, she surpasses all creatures and deserves a special honor and reverence in the Church of Christ by all Christians. For as she herself prophesied in Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 48, For behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. Mary is the mother of God. Because Jesus, who is born of her, is God and didn't cease to be God at the time of the Incarnation. Instead, by virtue of the union of essences, he remained both God and man in one. This is called the hypostatic union. Those who deny that Mary is the mother of God are denying that God the Son came in the flesh. And in 1 John chapter 4 verse 3, the scripture says that every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now already is in the world. Mary is the mother of the Redeemer, because her son Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of mankind, by virtue of his sacrificial death on the cross. She is the mother of the church, because the church is the body of Christ, and Christ himself entrusted the church to her through beloved Apostle John, where he said in the Gospel of John 19, verses 26 and 27, Woman, behold your son, and her to the church, when he said, Son, behold your mother. Mary is the mother of the members of Christ, having cooperated by charity, that the faithful might be born in the church, who are members of that head. Wherefore she is hailed as a preeminent and singular member of the church, and as its type and excellent exemplar in faith and charity. 
The Catholic Church, taught by the Holy Spirit, honors her with filial affection and piety as a most beloved mother. See Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, number 53. Now, on our devotion to the Most Blessed Virgin Mary. Our devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary is to appreciate the graces of God upon her life and to appreciate her role in the economy of salvation. Our belief is that since it pleased God to give salvation to the world through her, it would also please Him to receive us and our prayers through her. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 971, clarifies that our honor to Mary is a special devotion which differs essentially from the adoration which is given to the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, and equally to the Father and the Holy Spirit, and greatly fosters this devotion. Catholics do not worship or adore Mary. We only revere and venerate her as she truly deserves and as Christ commanded us. And there is no amount of honor or reverence that is too much for her. If mere human beings go with the titles of reverend, venerable, honorable, the Blessed Virgin Mary deserves so much more. But we must know that there are three types of worship. The first one is called Latria, which means supreme worship. This is the worship given to God alone. The next one, the second one is Hyperdulia, which means superior honor. This is the honor which is given to the Blessed Virgin Mary as the mother of God made man. And the third and the last is called Dulia, which means honor. This is the honor which is given to all other saints and angels. You can as well add your own classification of honor and worship. We all revere, we venerate, we honor people, we respect them. Those people we consider as deserving them. They may be our parents, teachers, pastors, mentors, or those who have impacted our lives in one way or the other. Similarly, our African value and culture requires us to show various kinds of obeisance and courtesy to deserving persons, elders, and leaders. And when we do that, we don't see it as worship. Rather, we see it as giving honor to whom honor is due. Permit me to say without mincing words, without any fear of favor, without bothering whose ox is God, that there is nobody who deserves honor and reverence more than Mary, who gave birth to our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. According to St. Irenaeus, as Eve by her disobedience caused her own death and that of the whole human race, so did the Virgin Mary by her obedience become the cause of her own salvation and that of all mankind. And the Saint Anselm said, and I quote, Although God could create the world out of nothing, yet when it was lost by sin, he did not repair the evil without the cooperation of Mary. End of quote. Mary is the bridge between the Old and New Testament, and we are led to address her, and rightly too, as the Ark of the New Covenant. Mary is the masterpiece of God, the perfect image of his beauty and glory. In the book of Exodus chapter 25, 10-25, the glorious Ark of the Covenant was built according to God's own specifications, and the two images of cherubs were molded on it. The people literally worshipped the Ark as it represents the presence of God. But firstly, let us examine the content of the celebrated Ark of the Covenant. According to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 4, the ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had booted, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Firstly, the manna. On their way to the promised land, God rained the food from heaven for the Israelites in the desert. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 25 to 59, Jesus affirmed that he is the real food from heaven. 
food of everlasting life. This Jesus, Mary carried in her virginal womb. Secondly, the staff of Moses. The staff of Moses was the sacramental that wrought so much wonders among the Egyptians and the Israelites in the Old Testament. The staff was a miracle worker, but Jesus Christ is a miracle worker per excellence. This Jesus, Mary carried in her virginal womb. Thirdly, the stone tablets. The law was given to Moses in two stone tablets. These tablets we are reposed in the ark. Jesus is not just the real lawgiver, but the perfection of the Lord of God. Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This Jesus, Mary carried in her virginal womb. The manna, the staff of Moses, the stone tablets, all signified and typified Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of mankind, and Mary carried him in her virginal womb. With these sacred items in the ark, it was held sacred and venerated by the people of God because they saw the ark of the covenant as tangible sign of God's presence in their midst. Look, the evangelist understood and appreciated how Mary fulfilled and fitted into the title of the ark of the new covenant. He drew Old Testament texts that any Jewish reader would understand and identify with the ark. Let us have some exegesis here. Firstly, let us study the similitude and similarity between Exodus chapter 40, 34 and 35 and Luke chapter 1 and 35. Exodus chapter 40 verse 34 says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Luke chapter 1 verse 35 reads, The power of the Most High will cover you with its shadow, and so the child will be holy and will be called the Son of God. Secondly, note that in the Old Testament, the cloud always signifies the presence of Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, the Word of God says that, By the day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. With its shadow, the cloud covered the Ark of the Covenant, while the glory of God, that is God himself, hid it from within. In her turn, Mary is going to be the object of this double manifestation, a presence from above that signifies transcendence and the presence of the Lord from within. Thirdly, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6, the scene of the visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary was prefigured. Here there is a story told in reference to the account of the transportation and the transfer of the Ark of the Covenant, which is very similar and is drawn up in close parallelism with episode of the visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The events, the atmosphere, the terms used to describe them correspond very closely. Let us listen to this. We are analyzing 2 Samuel chapter 6 and Gospel of Luke chapter 1. In 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 2, David and his men hurried out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of the Covenant. In Luke chapter 1 verse 39, at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. Secondly, in 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 5, David and the whole people of Israel were celebrating before the Ark of the Covenant. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 41 to 43, Elizabeth's cry of greeting and the exhortation of John the Baptist at the presence of Mary. Thirdly, in 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 9, David said, However can the ark of the covenant come to me? 
and in Luke chapter 1 verse 43, Elizabeth said, But how can I be so favored that the mother of the Lord should come to me? Additionally, in 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 11, the ark of the Yahweh remained for three months in the house of Obededon. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 56, Mary remained in the house of Elizabeth for three months. Let us note the following parallels between the visitation and the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Abinadab to that of Obededom and to Jerusalem. 1. The two journeys that took place in Judah. 2. There were shouts of jubilation, that of the people and that of the Elizabeth in the New Testament. 3. David and the John the Baptist exalted for joy. 4. The presence of the Ark and that of Mary were blessings to the house and to the people. And the five, the ark and Mary remained in the house for three months. These scriptural passages are not mere coincidences. In fact, in the marvelously artful account of the visitation, the image of the ark of the covenant is walked into the person of Mary. And here and there, in the typological approach, it is possible to see that the Lord whose mother she is, is no other than the same Lord who resided in the ark. Finally, let us consider this. The theme is taken up in the final time at the end of the infancy gospel. As Jesus enters the temple, Simeon greets him as the glory of Israel. Confer Luke chapter 2 verses 32. This is a divine title. The glory of Yahweh that had deserted the temple once it was bereft of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember Ichabod in 1 Samuel chapter 4 verse 19 to 21. This same God re-enters the temple as Mary comes there carrying Jesus. Thus it is that Simeon can now die happily. He now can see that since he has seen the glory of the Lord, the time has been fulfilled. Here, Mary, eschatological daughter of Zion and the Ark of the New Covenant, accomplishes her mission in a way in bringing to the temple the one whose place it properly is. This is what Jesus himself will affirm in the very last episode of the infancy gospel, that of his being found in the temple, when he said in Luke chapter 2 verse 49, I must be in my father's house. In Luke chapter 1 verse 35, Apostle Luke asserts that this creative life-giving power of the Most High will overshadow Mary. Luke's choice of the word overshadow is of great importance here. Several recent writers, both Catholics, Lutheran, Anglican, have stressed the significance of this verb in this context. They see in it an indication that the divine presence descended on Mary as it has one descended on the Ark of the Covenant. At the very end of the book of Exodus, in chapter 40, verse 34 to 35, it is written that the cloud enveloped the tent of witness, and the tent was filled with the glory of the Lord. And Moses could not enter the tent of witness because the cloud was overshadowing it, and the tent had been filled with the glory of the Lord. In the great Old Testament, words meaning to overshadow are comparatively rare. They are nearly always found in passages which speak of the presence of God. For example, in Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2 to 6, the prophet promises that on the day of Yahweh, the divine presence will once again overshadow the purified daughter of Zion with its glory. When St. Luke wrote the word overshadow, he knew it would provoke the mind of any Jewish reader. No Jew reading the words that the power of the Most High will overshadow thee could fail to think of the divine presence or the Shekinah glory. The meaning of Luke chapter 1 verse 35 therefore is that the creative power of God's Holy Spirit was going to descend upon Mary as the glory of the Lord had once descended upon the tent of witness and filled it with the divine presence. 
Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 19 through chapter 12, verse 1, Bible says, and I quote, Then the sanctuary of God in heaven was thrown open, and the Ark of his covenant was seen standing inside his sanctuary. And there were flashes of lightning, loud rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a terrific hailstorm. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. End of quote. It is very clear that the woman spoken about here is the same woman prophesied in the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis chapter 3. She is still the same woman mentioned in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 35. She is the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the Blessed Virgin Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. Beloved listener, our God is omnipotent, he can do all things. He is omnipresent, he is everywhere. He is omniscient, he knows all things. He is all-sufficient, he is complete in himself and lacks nothing. Whatever he does is perfect and no one can advise him or question his will or authority. The role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the history of salvation, the place of Mary in the church, of her son, and the honor given to her by some Christians are sources of concern to other Christians who are not comfortable with it. But who would curse whom God has blessed? Who would fight whom God has favored? Who would attack whom God has protected? Nobody. Mary was firstly honored by God. Why not imitate God by honoring her also? God is happy with the most blessed Virgin Mary, her daughter. How can you be unhappy with her? To honor Mary is to fulfill biblical prophecy. Come on, let us honor her. As a Christian, Mary is your mother, whether you realize it or not, whether you understand it or not, whether you believe it or not. Remember that the one you call Lord and God, Master and Savior, calls her mother. May the Holy Spirit of God enlighten your understanding and give you the conviction to do the will of God in this aspect. And may the great mother of God, Mary Most Holy, continue to intercede for you until she sees you admitted into the kingdom of our dear son, where she is your queen forever and ever. Amen. I leave you with God's choicest blessings. Oh God, we thank you for choosing the blessed Virgin Mary and preparing her for the task of human salvation. By this special privilege, you made her daughter of God the Father, mother of God the Son, and spouse of the Holy Spirit. You kept her sinless and made her docile to the inspirations of the Holy Spirit. Grant, we pray, Lord, that having known and understood this mystery, we would love and honor her for the role she played in the economy of our salvation. Forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being patient. Remain blessed. I am his master servant, Jeremiah Onkobi, a lay preacher and teacher, a trained and commissioned evangelizer and a counselor. You can contact me on 080-6945-3866. You can follow Crusader Jerry on Instagram or like my Facebook pages, his master servant ministries or the Crusader. Visit my website to read my articles or download talks at hismasterservantministries.com.ng Thank you and remember that.